Well, good morning. My name is Michael Giuliano. I am one of the pastors here at Oakwood. I am actually the technical arts minister. And if you don't know what that means, those guys are my crew. So thank you guys very much. But seriously, thank you to all the people in the production booth who make moments like those happen and moments like these all the time. Everybody that does cameras, thank you very much to my minions. I appreciate all of you. Um, but yes, I'm the technical arts minister. If it, it requires electricity and requires a network connection, it probably falls under my jurisdiction. I do a little bit of marketing here as well. I'm sorry, I'm still laughing. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so I've been here at Oakwood for about eight months. Um, I am native born here in Enid, uh, born and raised here. I went to ECS for grade school. I went to OBA for high school. Then I went to Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee for college. Yes, I was, I was a Baptist. I once was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> uh, Oklahoma Baptist University is where I met my wife. Her name is Kristen. She's here in the service, and uh, we have two kids together. Uh, my, my son, his name is Liam Caleb. He's about four, and my daughter, Mia Quinn, is about one. And if you see a little blonde boy running around here with the energy of the Energizer Bunny on steroids, that is my son. I love him very much. We're working on self-control. If he runs into you, I do apologize. I love them to death, and I love being a father more than I thought I, uh, more than I really thought I ever could. Um, and in fact, uh, I will make a few jokes today. If they fall flat, I do apologize. Um, I have been telling dad jokes since I was 12, and they've gotten worse since I've had two kids. You can ask my wife, who shakes her head at me regularly, as she's doing right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've been here for, for a while, and, and when Eric uh, asked me and Rusty to preach, he, he asked us to do sermons on topics that would let you guys get to know us a little bit better. Uh, so to that end, um, does anybody know what the Enneagram is? Okay, it's, it's a personality test for those of you who don't. I love that, like, the worship team and, like, a lot of the youth are like, yes! <laughs> Um, it's a little bit like Myers-Briggs. It kind of assigns you a number, one through nine, and kind of tells you about who you are. It's very in-depth. I'm an eight. An eight is the aggressor, is what they're nicknamed for. Um, our base emotion is anger. On one side of the spectrum, really healthy, we can be superheroes. On the other side, we're serial killers, so don't get on my bad side. Um, but I, I, as an eight, um, I really like conflict. I love things that are... Um, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, when two people like have dis differing opinions on that kind of stuff. I love debates. I love getting into those types of discussions and arguments. Um, and so to that end, I thought I would talk about something that's a little bit in that realm. Um, another part of me is that I, I really became fascinated in college and in my young adult life with the fact that my generation and the generations around me seem to be not just leaving the church, but fleeing from the church in large numbers. And my question was always, why? What motivates that? And I think there's a lot of reasons, everything from cultural to socioeconomic to uh, just where we are in history. I think there's a lot of answers to that question. And I've, I've gotten to look at those and dive into those. So I thought that would be a great thing to talk about this morning for my first time speaking in front of a congregation, talk about a really controversial issue. Hope it goes well. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what my heart is. I, I want to know 
what drives my generation and how we can evangelize better because that's just the truth. Um, there's, there's stories, the statistics that show all the time that starting in about the 70s and 80s, that as kids grow up, they hit college, they go to college, and either they never set foot in a church again, or over the course of the next several years, they just kind of fade away and they're no longer in the church. And that people my age, if they've never grown up in the church, that they're almost... There's just something that's far more difficult to evangelize about the younger generations. And my question is, why? Because we're supposed to win... No, no, no. We're supposed to preach the gospel and let God win souls to Christ, right? And my question is, how can we do that better? How can we reach a generation who doesn't just seem to be leaving the church, but fleeing from it? I'm very sorry. I promise it'll get better, little girl. I promise. (laughs) By the way, I love kids. I love hearing kids in church. Um, I, honestly, I love it when a, when a child screams or laughs because that's the words God has put in their mouth. It says, make a joyful noise. And, you know, you may say, well, they're screaming because they're hungry. You don't know that. They could be very happy. So I love having children in service. So I love that little girl right there. She's adorable, by the way. So what I want to talk about today is the two great lies that I believe Satan has sold over the course of the last several decades, last several centuries, to these, two, these generations around mine. The two great lies. Now, before I really jump into that, um, really jump into what those are, I want to I read a scripture. I want you to keep this in the back of your mind, and we will come back to it later. And this is it. It is in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. May God, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. Okay, but on to these two great lies, one rooted in scripture, the one that he has told to the church, and one rooted in, I think, psychology, the one he has told to the culture. Now, if you're saying, well, can Satan really sell a lie to the church? Yes, he can, and he has time and time again throughout history. The Bible calls Satan the great deceiver, that in the Revelation, whenever the, the dragon is thrown into the burning pit of fire forever and ever, he is called the great deceiver, that he is like a serpent, right? Satan goes about disguised as an angel in order to deceive. Scripture tells us again and again, be careful of the snares of the devil that you may not fall into them. That's to the church. Satan is a master of deception, and he is brilliant. He can sell lies to the culture. He can sell lies to the church. Now, all great lies are rooted in truth. You may have heard that, you know, all good lies have truth in, hidden in there, so there's a grain of truth in every lie. I think great lies, lies befitting the king of lies, have the roots deeply in truth. And as it grows, he manipulates the truth into something that it is not. But then whenever people question it, he's able to point back and say, ah, no, no, it's real. And the one for the culture is rooted in truths of psychology and how the brain works. The one for the church, he has rooted in Scripture because Satan knows his Bible. He tried to use it against Christ when he tempted him in the wilderness. He knows it better than probably any of us do, and he knows how to weaponize it, and he has mastered that skill. Let's go ahead and jump into these two lies, which I believe that these two lies together create 
not just a rift, but a wedge of division between the church and the culture so great that not only does it separate us just because they don't believe the same way that we believe or that we, Scripture tells us that we will not be accepted by earth. No, that there's literally an active hatred from both sides creating a relationship that just shoves our culture further and further away from the Scriptures. I think you're going to agree with me on the first lie. I'm curious about the second. Let's jump in. The first great lie, your sexuality or your gender identity is the core of your identity. That's our first great lie. And what do I mean by that? I I, I mean that in our culture today, homosexuality, the LGBTQ plus movement, their cry, their anthem is, I have to be the real me. I have to be myself, right? This is me. This is who I am. This is who I was born to be. The very core of who they are is wrapped up in their gender identity. And Satan has sold this lie to them that if you're not true to yourself in that regard, you're not true to yourself in any regard, that you are lying to yourself and you're lying to the world because this, this is really who you are. It's a really good lie. And Satan has sold it for generations. And I'm not just meaning, like, about your sexuality. I mean, he sold this lie that your personhood is based on something else for a long time. It's maybe been your nation or your family. Maybe a relationship that you have, which is what codependency is. Maybe you find your identity in a hobby or a task. Or, and this, I think, is the most poignant one, because I think we've heard this one in the church a lot. Have you ever heard, men, husbands, your identity is not in your job. Right? That's the one we've heard for a very long time. It's true. Because it seems sometimes when men, if they've been in the same field for 20, 30, 40 years, and they lose their job or they retire, it almost seems like they're wandering now. Like, who am I? What am I outside of this position? That's the idea. That if you're not true to your sexual identity or gender identity, that you're not your true self and you're wandering. That is what Satan has sold. And it's, it's a brilliant line. Because not only does it accomplish several goals, one in particular accomplishes is the oversimplification of the human mind. And Satan loves to do that. He loves to degrade the human being because he wants God's creation, this brilliant thing that God has created, he wants it lowered and debased and degraded because he wants to cause pain, division, and he wants to cause separation. See, the human mind is is extremely complex. Psychology, psychoanalysis, neuroscience, there's entire fields dedicated to understanding how the brain works, how it processes, and how it forms this idea of the self. Um, Now, if you're in any of those fields, you're studying any of them, please do not get mad at me. I'm going to try to explain a few things, and if I say something wrong or I oversimplify it, I only have so much time, and I'm not that smart. My wife is... See, that was one of those jokes I tried. Anyways, my wife has actually studied some of this stuff in college. She's had to explain a few things to me a couple of times because I didn't study it in college. So again, I do apologize if I get something wrong or overgeneralize. I'm not trying to teach psychology. But there was a researcher, a scientist named Freud. Has anyone ever heard of Freud or Freudian slip? All right. So what he did is he really laid the foundations for understanding how the human mind creates the self in the modern era. Now, in the last several decades, more and more people are saying, well, I disagree with this or I disagree with that. 
But what he laid down was a foundation. He came up with three things, the id, the ego, and the superego. The id is the most basic form of our instincts and impulses, right? When a baby is born, they are hungry, they cry, they eat. They are tired, they cry, they sleep. As they grow, they see a toy, they go get it. If you take it from them, they are angry, they want it back. That's the id, impulsive, I want, I need, now. Your superego is more like the moral side of your brain, the higher part of your brain, right? You, 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 uh, develop a worldview. You think of ethics and morals, things the way the world ought to be, how things should go, how you should act, right? That's the superego, kind of the opposite of the id. These are both unconscious parts of your brain, right? So they sit back here, and the ego has to try to make sense between the two as they argue, make a conscious decision, and then act. It's kind of like if you are got an angel and a devil on one shoulder and you're listening to them, but it's all subconscious, and it happens instantly. If you're a little confused, that's great. I'm not trying to teach this. My point is this. The human mind, the human psyche is made up of a complex system of overlays that make up our personality. And this oversimplification of the human being to a single core thing that if you're not true to that identity, then you're not your true self is brilliant. It accomplishes so much. Psychology does tell us though, this whole rooted in truth, remember that? that how you view your body, how you view yourself, how you are attracted to other people, that does affect your identity. That is a part of who you are. But it's not this core, central thing that if it's gone and it's lost, then you are not yourself. That's the lie. It's taking a side thing and making it the main thing. Yet another thing Satan is really good at doing. But that's the lie. And that's from psychology. Now, one other thing on that. Scripture also speaks to this. Scripture tells us as Christians that we should find our identity in Christ, that conscious part of our brain should find who we are in Jesus Christ, because we are beings who are made in the image of God. We are made in spirit. We can't let temporal things, our identity, our gender identity, our job, our relationships define who we are at our core, because our core self is in spirit and in truth. We should be founded on Christ. So there's that lie, all right? Now, the second lie is the one that's been told to the church. And you may not agree with me at first, but hear me out, because I want to show you how this lie drives apart society from the church. Because it's genius. The second lie. Homosexuality is the worst and most destructive of all sins. That's the lie. The lie is that homosexuality, if it enters your house, if it enters your culture, your community, it is going to kick down your door, rip your family apart, take your culture to who knows where. It's going to burn down your house, and for good measure, it's going to take your cow. I mean, seriously. That's the lie that Satan has sold, that, that homosexuality is at its core this evil, horrible, revilest thing that there is literally nothing else that could enter your household that could be worse. And if, if, if maybe you, you think, I don't know if I buy that, let me just stay with me for a second. Imagine if you're a parent and you have a kid. If they came home and they said, I think I'm gay. If your heart just skipped a beat or your heart rate went up, that's what I'm talking about. Or if your Sunday school teacher, they said, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Just that was what they uh, confessed during prayer, asking for prayer. I don't even know if most churches have a protocol to know what to do with that. So even if we don't actively say these words, it is literally built into our DNA because it's been a lie that's been sold for decades. 
That is the most revilest, terrible thing that we could possibly expect to come into our homes or come into our lives. Now, here's the genius of that. When you hear those words, right, we just think of a sin. But remember what I said a minute ago? The core of your identity, if you believe the first lie, is your homosexuality or your non-binariness or your bisexuality. And now, when the church says that is horrible, that is terrible, that is reviled, you're not just hearing what I'm doing, what I think, what I believe is terrible and is a sin. No, what you're hearing is my, the very core of my being. What makes me up is an affront to God Almighty, and he hates the very bones of my body. What would I ever want to do with a God who hates my very personhood? That's genius. That is a brilliant lie. Your personhood is your sexuality. Homosexuality is the most vile sin ever. It will destroy your life. You will destroy my family. You will destroy my culture. You will destroy... That is what's heard. No wonder when kids grow up and they have same-sex attraction, they hit college, and they head out of the church. Because here's what they hear for decades and decades at home or at church is that same-sex attraction, homosexuality is horrible, it is terrible. If it enters into a home and it will destroy the home, what kid is ever going to say, I struggle with that, can I have prayer for that? No, because while they're hearing that from the church, they're hearing from the culture, you are fine the way you are. We love you just for who you are. Be your true self. Of course, when they get to college, which direction are they going to go? We are attracted to love and to acceptance. And that's why I was talking about this wedge. There's hate or what feels like pure hate coming from the church for a group of people. And they hate back. And now all we have between this relationship is this spewing of hatred. And people outside of that and the culture who may not exactly agree that sexuality is the core of their identity, but because this lie has been sold to the culture, sexual identity now has way, way higher a ranking in their own minds. They see this relationship and they have empathy for homosexuals who feel like they've been oppressed for a very long time. And they see this hate flying back and forth and they go, do I really want to be a part of that? It's brilliant. It divides, and as this, 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 this hatred grows, it extends into every part of our lives, everything from schools to politics to family life to, I mean, literally anywhere. Go on Facebook for 15 minutes, and you'll see this conflict come up. Now, let me, let me stop real quick and say this. Homosexuality is a sin. That is scriptural. I'm not here to debate that. I'm not here to prove or disprove that. We have a paper written on it as a church. If you want to know more, you can talk to me or any of our pastors. We'd be glad to talk to you about it. What I'm saying here is the lie is that homosexuality is the worst thing to ever hit the planet. And let me prove it to you. And by prove, I mean let me show you some scripture, and then you decide if I'm right or not. Do you know that homosexuality doesn't make it into the Ten Commandments? Or in Proverbs... Six, when it talks about the six things that God hates, the seven thing that he reviles, it's not on that list either. Now, it is in the Old Testament scriptures, one of the things that you could be stoned for in, the, in this uh, country of Israel, 
But if you go back and read Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of things that you could be stoned for. In the New Testament, it's listed in lists of sins. In fact, it's listed in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to read that for you now. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There's another list in Galatians 5.19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revileries, dissensions, divisiveness, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all these things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those lists are lists of things from which Christians, in the context of those scriptures, should stay away from, should strive to be apart from. Homosexuality is on those lists, but it's listed along with all of these other sins. In Romans, it tells us, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. In James, the scripture says that if you break one piece of the law, you have broken the law. One sin in eternity is more than enough to separate us from the love of God. It is more than enough to break the relationship between God and man. Now, don't get me wrong. Sins have temporal consequences, different temporal consequences. If I steal from my neighbor versus if I kill my neighbor, I promise you, this is going to have a few more consequences. But we cannot treat one sin as this cataclysmic thing and not talk about other sins because here's the deal. I have seen and I have had stories from other pastors and people that I can tell you I have seen and heard about drunkenness, anger, dishonesty, gossip, tearing more families, communities, and churches apart than homosexuality unless that particular family or community decides to self-implode. Because here's what I mean by that. My generation is littered with stories of kids coming out to their parents at 13, 14, 15, and being kicked out of their homes. Of saying that at a church or at an event and being ridiculed, shamed, shoved aside, or sent to some kind of conversion therapy. Homosexuality, same-sex attraction, is a temptation like any other. We as the church, I feel, have also bought in at times to this narrative that homosexuality is something you are, not something you are tempted about. What would happen in the church if in a small group somebody said, I struggle with anger, I need prayer? We would say, we love you. Let us come around you. What do you need? I struggle with lust and pornography. We love you. We care for you. We'll pray for you. What do you need? What if we also said, I struggle with same-sex attraction. I love you. I will pray for you. What do you need? Because the Bible says that we are to deny ourselves and follow Christ. 
I'm to deny my pride. I'm to deny my lustful thoughts. Why not I'm supposed to deny my homosexual thoughts and follow Christ? We need to change our language and our verbiage the same as the culture does. We need to recognize that. Because you see, in, in, uh, again, in the book of, I believe it's James, it says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Not that you may have accountability, not that you may be ridiculed, not that we may know what you've done, not that God may know what you've done. No, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed because we will pray for you. Imagine if that was our language. Imagine if that was, was what the culture saw was that we see people that are homosexual, that are non-binary, that don't know, and we say, we love you, we are here, we want to talk. Not, that is the most vile thing I've ever seen. Now again, I'm not saying this church or this town does that really specifically. I'm saying the church as a whole in the Western world has done this. And again, don't believe me? Go watch the news, go get on social media, Go take a walk for 20 minutes in a large city or go to a, a pride parade. I promise you, you will see this hatred between these two different groups very evidently. Now, I said this earlier because I want to talk about, well, what do we do with this? What, what needs to change? What needs to be different? For one, we cannot demonize one sin while giving others a pass. We have... And again, we, the collective church, have demonized homosexuality while giving other sins a pass. And what do I mean by that? Well, I, I told you about a couple of lists of sins earlier, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. Let me give you a couple more, because there's quite a few in the New Testament. Uh, Mark 7, 21 through 23. From, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, idolatry, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Colossians 3, 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is in you earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's more. There's anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. In Romans 1, 18 through 31, there's a whole host of sins from which we are to flee all of these sins we should treat with the same level of, I'm not going to say contempt, I'm going to say with the same level of compassion toward people and seriousness. Because here's the deal, I came from the Baptist church, and do you know how many Southern Baptist pastors are obesely overweight, not because of a health condition, but because they cannot control their own gluttony? Do you know how many Churches have been torn apart by gossip. How much division has been made because people can't handle their own anger or their pride, and churches have split over small things. We all heard it. They've split over the changing the color of the carpet. That tears the church apart more than homosexuality. And yet, we rail against that in public. We cannot do that because Christ came to sanctify the lost, and one of the groups of people he spoke to the most, the only one he really ever dug into, were this, the, the elite in the religions, the spiritually better, because they were hypocrites. And when we, when we rail against one sin, but we give another a pass in our churches and our leadership and our communities, 
we to the culture have become hypocrites. Whether or not we're right or wrong, that's hypocrisy. And that is yet another thing that this conflict has created that drives more people away. Because again, my generation, more than anything, they value being true to yourself and seeing hypocrisy riles them up. It's brilliant, this, these two lies that Satan has sold to the culture and to the church. And they work so well together to create so much division. He's brilliant. Second thing, though, that we must do, and I, I want to come back to 2 Timothy here real quick. That verse I had you read before, let's look at it again. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, passionately, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the big thing. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think sometimes in the church we expect the culture to act in a Christian manner or act in a way that we think is ethical. Here's the deal. Scripture tells us very pointedly there and in other places as well that the culture will not act the way that we think they should because they are in fact slaves to the devil. They are captured by him to do his will in the same way that we should be slaves to Christ to do his. And it says that if we are to confront them, we must do it with patience and with gentleness. And so here's the deal. We must hold our convictions with fists of stone and speak as if speaking to our child. Why do I say we must hold our convictions like fists of stone? Well, this same conflict that I've been talking about other churches, other believers have seen it. I think a lot of people see it, but here's what some churches have done. We're on this side of the pendulum, and they've gone, huh, how do we reach these people? How do we reach people in the homosexual community? I've got an idea. We're going to swing the pendulum this way. You know what? Homosexuality is fine. The scripture actually supports it. We're going to have homosexual ministers. They're going to preach that it's totally fine to be that way. No. Scripture very much says that's not the case, and that is probably almost as bad or if not worse than what is already happening. We cannot sacrifice the truths of Scripture just because it will be convenient to evangelize with, because then what is our faith? But when we communicate, we must speak as if to a child. Scripture tells us to do this. And one of the, one of the big reasons actually comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. I, I found this Scripture, and I, I really do truly love it, because it speaks to exactly what I'm talking about here. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Christ, when he came, he rubbed shoulders with sinners, with the lowest. He went into Samaria to go find Samaritans. And if you remember, Samaritans were the descendants of the Israelites and Gentiles who intermarried and they had kids. And in the Old Testament, that was a big no. That was like one of the biggest ones. So these descendants were, and remember this phrase, sin itself. 
in flesh and body, and Christ went and found them, and he sat next to them, and he's discussed, discussed with them. Now, he told them truth, but every time we see Christ, almost every single time, he is sitting down at a table speaking and discussing with them. And the only time that we really have note of Christ speaking with harsh language or very, very, uh, not, not anger, but just this harshness is two religious people who thought they were better than they were. And we cannot become that. We must speak with softness and with kindness. We cannot become hypocrites because that drives away the message of Christ. Let me read you two scriptures about this. First Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a, reason, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I feel like we leave out that last phrase so often. We're ready for, to answer for, the, answer for the hope that is with us. Do it with kindness, gentleness, and respect. We have those types of verses all through the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Colossians 4, 5 through 6. But let me read you one more. It's from Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Fist of stone on our belief and hearts that are soft and kind so that we can break the cycle of two great lies that Satan has told and he has spent time weaving. That we may begin to see healing in our communities. Now, as I was preparing to do this, preparing to speak, I, I realized I was going to have the opportunity to also lead us in communion, which we will take here in just a minute. And at, at home, I'm hoping you've made preparation for that, have bread and, and juice or, or some elements to take. Um, but communion was something Christ instated with us. It was, it was done at a meal when he was rubbing shoulders with his disciples. And he said, the bread represents my body, the blood represents, the wine represents my blood. Take these in remembrance of me. And the Christ that I remember, that I think he wants us to remember, is the one who went and sought out the sinner's Samaritans and who sat next to them and broke bread with them. I think he would want us to remember that and to have the same heart that he had because can you imagine can you imagine if that narrative changed on the greater scale in America and what the LGBTQ community heard from the church was we love you just the way you are just as God does but he and we love you too much to let you stay that way. The same way that I once was a sinner full of pride and anger like I am, and God is changing me. I think that would be the message that Christ would want us to take communion with. So if you will, pray with me over these elements. Gracious Heavenly Father, May the words that were spoken here today, may they have been from you. May what you wanted to hear have been what I spoke. Let the people here know to be like the Bereans and to search out your scriptures and to look and to see if what I said was truly from the Spirit. Because God, that is how the church grows. That is how the church stays in right theology and right thinking. But God, may we have the heart of Christ as we take these elements now. May we have a love for people, a love for you, and a heart that desires to know more about you. 
and to walk in step with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.